why don't you guys open your Bibles, if you haven't already opened there, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. If you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We will get someone to get you a Bible very quickly. Um, they've got Bibles to give, and they want to give them away. If you don't have a Bible, um, please keep it. It's our gift to you guys. We want you to have a Bible. So what we're going to do this morning is uh, we're going to continue in the book of Ephesians. We've been going through this great book for quite a few months, actually since January, and we're going to continue going through it today. Uh, we're in chapter 6, and uh, I'll sort of give you a little bit of a summary or a synopsis in a moment, so you can put your hand down. You got, we got some Bibles coming. Look at this. We'll just give you some rest there, so I don't want you to get sore. Um, anyways, I'll raise my hand for you. It's right there, right there. Um, so I'll give you a quick little synopsis in a moment, but I want to jump right in. I want to read the passage that Paul has written to us, and I'm going to read it to you actually in two translations. So one more Bible. There we go. Right in the front, this young lady with a blue sweater on and a purse around her neck. All right, there we go. We got it. All right. I think you're a marked woman now. You're good. Okay, back on track. So Paul has been talking about uh, the gospel and how the gospel really moves forth and right here, and begins to, <laughs> it's right here, come on, just kidding. Um, I want to read the passage. We're going to actually read it out of two different translations. If you guys don't have them, so just go ahead and look up on the screen. We'll have them up there. But first one, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. We're just going to look at a couple verses, and I'm going to read it next in what's called the Phillips translation. It's more of a paraphrase. He does a good job of sort of paraphrasing what Paul had said and have a little bit of a different flavor, and I kind of add some elements to it. I think that may be helpful for us in understanding. So I'll read the passage. Um, in those two different translations, I'll pray, and then we'll begin to sort of set this up and begin to unpack what Paul, I think, has to say with regard to this uh, larger concept or topic, which is actually spiritual warfare. So maybe some of you, even when I say that word, some of you might get a little bit creeped out. You're like, oh, great, are we talking about demons and weird stuff and people's heads spinning on their shoulders and all sorts of crazy stuff like that. So the reason why I think we oftentimes can have a tendency to react that way is because we've seen the topic of spiritual warfare kind of all over the gamut. We've seen it kind of abused. We've seen people go crazy with this topic. And uh, the fact of the matter is it's a biblical topic. We have to address it. We have to try to understand the way Paul, I think, wrote it. And then from there begin to sort of figure out how does that work into our lives? How do our lives, uh, how are we to actually respond to it accordingly? So let me read the passage. Uh, We'll pray and then we'll begin to get work uh, looking at this. So Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, Paul says this. Finally, obviously closing up his letter here, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And then I'll read out of the Phillips translation, which is also going to be up on the screen. It says this, In conclusion, be strong, not in yourselves, but in the Lord, in the power of his boundless resource. Put on God's complete armor so that you can successfully resist all the devil's methods of attack. For our fight is not against any physical enemy. It's, uh, it is against organizations and powers that are spiritual. We are up against the unseen power that controls this dark world and spiritual agents from the very headquarters of evil. So let's pray and begin to take a look at this. So God, right now we ask that you would help us to understand what you have to say about this. 
God, again, we, we come to your word oftentimes having all sorts of baggage and misperceptions and misunderstandings. And so, God, we ask you that you would help us to be able to just have minds and hearts that are uh, slates, that are blank, that allow you to inform us and allow you to speak to us and allow you to help reshape our understanding how things are. So, God, we uh, submit our hearts and our minds and our thoughts to you right now and ask for your help. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to start by reading a quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's a common, popular quote that he's, you know, I've quoted this several times before, but it's actually from his book called Screwtape Letters. And it's at the beginning of this book that C.S. Lewis writes this little passage right here. I think we'll put it up here. It says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors, and they hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So I think it's kind of a fascinating passage, because what C.S. Lewis does, he basically says, look, we have to deal with this stuff, but there's a tendency for us to err on one or two extremes. One, the way he describes it as being like a magician, which is an ultra-spiritualist, is always seeing everything as some form of spirituality behind it. In other words, you are driving down the beach and you hit traffic and you're like, oh my gosh, you start like cursing devils because somehow devils are to blame for traffic. Maybe it's just, you know, a car wreck or someone driving slow in the fast lane when you shouldn't be. And, uh, and, and, and the reality is, is like there may be just traffic. It just, it may not have any type of spiritual cause. And basically C.S. Lewis says that is sort of the approach of the magician, always seeing some sort of mythological purpose or reason behind it all the time or spiritual purpose behind it everything. The opposite extreme, as he says, is that of the materialist, one who basically um, objects to anything spiritual. Now, before we jump in any further, I really want to point out two basic objections, I think, that are important for us to keep going further, because if you're anything what I just said so far, what I'm basically affirming or stating is that we're talking about unseen things that are there that are actually influencing and causing problems within this world. Do you realize how absolutely absurd that sounds? I mean, seriously, that it sounds absolutely absurd. If, if you are watching news and all of a sudden, like, I don't know, Brian Williams, whoever's on you know, NBC or whatever it is right now, is like, you know what, we were taking a look at ISIS, and there was a demon that just came down out of nowhere and was, like, causing ISIS to behead people. Like, we'd be like, this, this has officially gone crazy. Like, these people do not know what they're talking about. Because we live in a world, by and large, within the West, that has been deeply influenced by rational thought and materialism. In other words, the idea is is that we as human beings have been able to figure out answers or given enough time, we will figure out answers and explain everything. By and large, this is what sort of the post-Enlightenment has basically offered to us, is that uh, at the time of the Enlightenment, we begin to discover is that through research, through study, through science, We can understand how this world ticks. So maybe 2,000 years ago, someone would say, well, the real issue is that this kid or this person or this uh, woman may have, you know, a demon. Well, in today's world, we might look at that and be like, well, they don't necessarily have a demon. They just have cerebral palsy. Or they may have some sort of disease that may kind of cause their body to be deformed. Whereas maybe 2,000 years ago, they might attribute that to a demon. And so the tendency is to basically look at anything in this world that is sort of, um, that we took, to look at it within a rational term. 
In other words, we can test it, we can uh, feel it, we can measure it, we can manage it. And so the two objections basically boil down to these two things. When we start talking about the subject matter of spiritual warfare, first problem is the problem of uh, militarism. The second problem is that of materialism. First of all, militarism. For one, we as a culture are, in a lot of ways, uh, weary of war. Obviously, we're in one Again, even though maybe a president may not be necessarily calling it a war, by and large, news media is that we are in a war against militant Islam or ISIS or whatever the case is, or maybe some would say they're not Islam, whatever the case is. But the point of the matter is, is that we are technically, to some degree, in a war. Even though it's not boots on the ground, we are technically in a war. So there's a tendency for us when we start hearing terminology describe spirituality within militaristic terms, we get a little bit weary on that, get a little bit gun-shy Sorry, the pun. But the point of the matter is, we don't like dealing with things from a militaristic type of a viewpoint. Um, so we're a little bit hesitant to worry about that. But the fact of the matter is, we have to, because the Bible actually uses terminology to describe things from a militaristic point of view. Um, but it's a very unique angle in which the Bible approaches with that. So we've just got to deal with that. And again, when we read the Bible, we have to read the Bible on its terms, so our tendency as Westerners, as post-Enlightenment type of people, is to read the Bible and say, I don't like the terminology the Bible uses. I don't like the way it addresses certain things. But we have to basically take it on its terms and allow it to inform us in its original context. And then from there, we can then begin to decipher what it has to say to us. But the point of the matter is, is that the Bible is pretty clear that there is some form of an unseen realm. Paul describes it as uh, the devil and other agents of evil. But the reality is, is Paul is describing for us how we process, how we understand the subject of evil. The second objection we've got to take a look at when we start talking about spiritual warfare or evil or personification of evil in the terms of the devil is we have to also face the objection of the problem of uh, materialism. And I already touched on this, but the fact of the matter is, is that because we live in a world that, for the most part, um, is, is uh, situated with an understanding of seeing things and troubleshooting or problem-solving things from a, a purely materialistic or physical or psychological or emotional type of a basis. And what that means is that, for example, we can look at most scenarios in the world and say, there's evil, there's badness, there's bad things that happen. And for the most part, the tendency is to say, well, the reason why those things have happened is because maybe the person was off their meds, or maybe the person was having a really bad day, or maybe they were in a, in a pit of depression, and that led them to do the specific things that they did. And so the idea is to basically look at everything in terms of materialistic perspective. In other words, the solution then would basically be that as long as that person is getting their medication, as long as there's education, as long as there's counseling or exercise, then somehow we can solve the problems of, of evil by way of those processes. And by and large, just telling you, this is how, for the most part, our present-day culture basically views this. That with enough education, enough medication, uh, enough exercise, enough good resources... Uh, to provide people with jobs, provide people with security, provide people with money, health care, all these things that somehow we can actually fabricate or create a society or a culture that's sustainable. And in theory, that sounds wonderful. I mean, do you realize that in theory, that was sort of the mentality coming out of World War I up until late um, you know, 1930s when they began to realize, like, wait a minute, 
we thought we eradicated evil. We thought we eradicated wickedness on the planet. And all of a sudden, there's a new face of evil, like Hitler. And the fact of the matter is, we live in a culture that we have to somehow figure out a name for the stuff that we see. I mean, let me ask you a question. How many of you actually watch the news or read the news or however you get the news? Actually, my wife and I and our family, we actually, uh, side note, we were down in L.A. for something, and they actually interviewed me on some sort of television program. And it was Channel 7 or something like that. And uh, they were asking me, like, well, how do you get your news? I think their main object was, like, you know, how often do you watch Channel 7 News? I'm like, uh, I, I don't watch TV. I don't ever watch your news radio station. I get all my news through Feedly. Like, that's it. Like, uh, I, I don't know any other source. You know, the point of the matter is, is, if you're like me, how many of you actually read the news, watch the news, whatever the case is, and at some point you just find yourself overwhelmed with anxiety and depression? I mean, honestly... I mean, I, I've almost been considering the fact of like maybe like taking a fast from all news media. Um, although I realize that may not necessarily help me because the fact of the matter is I don't want to necessarily turn into somebody that just kind of shuts off myself to the world either. But the fact of the matter is what's happening in our world in so many ways is overwhelmingly de- depressing and full of anxiety. I mean, how else, how else do we as human beings... Uh, struggle with or rationalize, say, for example, the beheading of that, you know, worker in that food processing plant? Like, how, how, how do you describe that? Did you say, well, that's just evolution at work? Natural selection is simply taking place. Some crazy guy, you can't even call him crazy because maybe he isn't crazy. Maybe he's normal. Maybe, maybe everyone else around him are crazy. Basically, choosing who should live, who shouldn't live. And the point of the matter is, we, we cannot settle with that. In other words, if somebody came into your life and raped and murdered or stole something of yours or destroyed something of yours, and someone comes up to you and they're just like, you know what, it's all right, be of good cheer, it's not evil, that's an insult. We need terminology to put to the things that we see. I mean, the reality is it's easy for us to not call something evil as long as evil, or what we would call bad things, is far away from us. In other words, as long as we are in the convenient, nice safety and comfort of our home, watching the news on our internet, um, you know, 10,000 miles away in a whole other country and a whole other culture, it's easy for us to watch that and be like, next, is there Seinfeld on? Or I can watch another Portlandia. And easy for our minds to simply shift gears and go into something else. But the moment evil comes near to us and it smacks us, we need something to call it. And here's my point. Um, there's an objection to materialism because materialism basically says we cannot believe in anything other than this physical world. So anything that is intangible or spiritual must be in the realm of myth or silliness or foolishness. And oftentimes the argument basically says you cannot prove that the spiritual world exists by way of rationalization or by way of testing or measuring uh, with regard to physical means. But the reality is, is you can't, you have to push back and say, you can't disprove that it exists. So here's my point. As we look at this, we have to come to grips with the fact that the Bible is basically affirming or claiming that there's a spiritual world. And we can have great objections to that. And a lot of us may have this as our main problem with regard to the Bible. 
But here's my point. How do you explain evil in this world? By what paradigm, by what lens do you use to sort of describe things in this world, not just simply out there, but things within here? Natural bents or tendencies that you have. All right, it's easy to not really be brought into an awareness of how wicked and how self-centered our hearts might be as long as you are single and you get to play video games and you know eat noodles and do whatever with your time that really is of no significance whatsoever. But the moment you get into a relationship, the moment you begin to share your life with somebody and uh, begin to move into a realm of, say, for example, marriage, you begin to realize how your heart in so many ways is bent towards selfishness and away from serving and loving and helping other people. And the more you get into relationships, at some point either you confront that and you watch it die, or you don't confront it, and you watch your relationship die. We call that divorce. It's as simple as that. So how do, you, how do we explain this is really what I'm trying to get at. And the Bible basically says the way that you explain it is that there is a dark, demonic, evil forces that are beyond, beyond, behind these physical forces, nature that we see, Paul describes them as spirit. Paul describes them as demonic. That's what the Bible is describing. So to take a purely uh, materialistic approach to the entire world, actually you will find you in a place of conflict with the Bible because the Bible forces you to accept the fact that there is more in this world than what you just simply see, touch, taste, or feel. That's what the Bible is saying. That's what the Bible's claim is. Now, again, we may look at that and just be like, well, I don't like mythology, but again, the fact of the matter is, is the approach that the Bible is basically saying. So we've got to take the Bible at its terms and at least allow it to begin to shape us. And here's my point. Every one of us, for the, to some degree, we form some form of a, a paradigm or a vision or a lens by which we're going to view evil in this world or things within this world. And all I'm simply saying is that if you take a materialistic approach to looking at evil and understanding evil, that's, a, that's an approach. In fact, I would even say that a materialistic approach is actually a rather young approach to understanding the problem of evil in this world, maybe a couple hundred years young. Um, mythology has been around for, you know, paganism has been around for thousands of years, and this has been the predominant way by which the world at large has tried to understand evil. In other words, behind every bad thing that happens, behind, you know, every death of a child, behind every, you know, meteorite that crashes, there's some sort of, you know, God or uh, gods behind it sort of conspiring against humanity. But the Christian approach basically says, no, we don't believe that there's little gods behind every little detail, the magician approach, nor does it say we don't believe that there is no form of spiritualism behind it. We would take an approach that says, no, we realize that there's a lot that we don't understand, that we don't explain, that we can't fully explain. But what the Bible does is it basically says here is an approach to address and understand, to view the world through a lens, to make sense of, to understand. It's not all-encompassing. It's not absolutely thorough, but it helps us. It's, in, it's, it's, it's set forth to help us wrestle with the problem and understand the problem of evil and to put it within a context. So that, rather than being overcome by evil when it comes into our lives, we can do what the Bible says, which is to overcome evil with good. Because I think you'd all agree that by and large, our society, the way that we deal with evil, really doesn't deal with evil. I mean, it really doesn't solve the problem of evil. It just 
either continues to promote more evil or to postpone evil for a later date. Would you agree? So in other words, somebody goes out and they're like, they chopped off, you know, people's heads. So we're going to go chop off their heads. You're, really what you're doing is you're basically taking evil and say we're going to crush evil with the same evil that they used to crush us. But you're never really doing away with evil. So the point of the matter is that the Bible helps us understand evil so that it would equip us for it when it comes into our lives. So with that, I want to basically begin to jump in and to understand what Paul really has been saying up until this point so that then we can begin to sort of unpack a little bit. So I want to read just a couple verses, uh, kind of a little bit, some kind of main point verses throughout uh, the book of Ephesians. Let's start with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. We'll read that. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says this. This is what God's up to. This is what God's doing uh, throughout all creation. He says, verse 10, he says, As the plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth, that Jesus, that God is up to in this world. God sees that everything in this world is in a state of separating, going forth, going away. We know that to some degree true. I mean, that's our reality in this life. Have you ever realized that every single thing that you are trying to grasp in this life to some degree, some measure is basically moving away from you. Whether it be a job, you're like, I want to get that job. So you're chasing after that job. I want to get that relationship. So you're chasing after that relationship. I want to get my identity in this. So you're chasing after that. But at some point, even if you grasp it, at some point you're going to lose it. Whether or not, you know, in this moment or this season of your life, at some point when you die, everything that you've chased after in this life, every relationship, every job, every bit of money, every bit of fame or affirmation, at some point will slip from your hands. Everything in this life is in a state of moving away from us. And what Paul is saying is that God is up to in this world by bringing all things together in Christ. All things in heaven, all things on earth, bringing them together in Christ. So that rather than our lives and our hearts and our existence being defined by brokenness and hurt and woundedness and going away, being marginalized, pushing off to the, uh, to the edges, God is bringing things together to himself and then ultimately to each other. So if you think of it this way, then Paul is going to say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, so 1, 10, 2, verse 10, here's what Paul says. He says, uh, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the idea that Paul's saying is that what God has done is he's, he's taken people that were once broken, people whose lives were nothing but disjointed and ruined and marred by sin, defined by rebellion, that God has actually, rather than distance himself from them, rather than shun them forever, for eternity, we call that hell, God says, I'm going to bring them to myself, draw them to myself. I'm going to take their lives that seem disoriented and broken, and I'm going to turn them into something absolutely beautiful. The word that he uses there is uh, workmanship, or in the, it comes from the Greek word poema, get the English word poem from it. It's the idea of taking all sorts of abstract words that may or may not have anything to do with each other, but by weaving them together, you create a beautiful story, something that makes sense, something that is not chaotic, but is full of order and orderliness. That's what Paul says that God is up to doing in your life. If you're a Christian today, that, that is exactly what your life is all about. God is taking this life that was once in, a, in an abyss of chaos, brokenness, defined by alienation from God and alienation from other people, and he's bringing order into your life by saving you, rescuing you from sin and the consequences of sin, making your life of something that's beautiful. Then Paul goes on to say, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, so 1, 10, 2, 10, 3, 10, 
Paul then says, he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. There's those phrases, rulers and authorities, that Paul actually used in chapter 6. We're reading about spiritual warfare. So what's happening is Paul says, yeah, God has actually taken this thing called the church. And the church, if you understand about the church, what Paul has been unpacking is that uh, for the most part within that first century world, there were Jews, they were given the Torah, they uh, basically claimed their lineage all the way back to a guy by the name of Abraham. If you've ever been in like children's ministry school or Sunday school, whatever you're saying about Father Abraham, they would trace their lineage back to this great, you know, you know, main guy of faith, the faithful guy called Abraham, and they would basically trace their lineage back to him. And there was sort of an arrogance that oftentimes kind of crept out of that, where they would look at themselves and say, we are Abraham's sons and Abraham's daughters. And anybody who is not and cannot trace their lineage back to Father Abraham are basically, for the most part, kindling in hell. And so the picture is, is that there was this radical distinction between Jews and Gentiles, and yet what Paul is saying is that there's a new thing on the planet called the church, and in that thing called the church are both Jew and Gentile, not at odds with each other, not lobbying insults towards one another, but loving one another. Not in competition with one another, but working together side by side for the purpose and the common goal of the mission of the gospel. Paul says this is what God's up to, that he's taking two segregated, separated groups of people, and he's bringing them together. This is one of the reasons why we would say the church really needs to be a place where all come and all are welcome. No matter who you are, no matter what type of circumstances you may be going through in your life, no matter how far or distant you may feel from God, no matter how much you may look at your life right now and feel stained by your sin, you're still welcome to come to that table and to eat at that table, to be at that table with all sorts of other people. See, the temptation is oftentimes to come and think, well, I'm not like them. They're all goody-goodies. They love Jesus. They sing songs. They memorize scripture verses. They do all this great Christian stuff. And I'm not like that. I struggle with porn. I struggle with sin. I'm a side alcoholic. I'm doing drugs. I'm doing stuff that nobody else probably in this church does. The fact of the matter is, is that we all, all of us, at some point, have found ourselves broken, whether it be by outward, overt forms of sin or simple, you know, maybe you've never been sort of defined by overt actions of sin, but you may be someone that maybe was brought up in the church and you look at those who sin with a lot of arrogance and judgment and your sin is more internal. But the point of the matter is, is we are all welcomed and invited to that table where Jesus washes us and cleanses us. That's the church. That's what the church is. We're all invited to come. And it's at the table that we, we, we receive life, sustenance, substance from the hand of this great God who at great cost to himself gave his life for us so that we can live. That's what the gospel is. That's what I want to invite you to. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know God, if you find yourself sort of struggling or feel yourself marginalized in your own sin, to come to that table to receive this kind gift from God and be saved. This is what the gospel announces and calls us to. This is what God's up to. But here's the thing. Everything I just described that God is up to in this world, in church, we could describe as basically being the forces of creation at work, new creation at work. 
God forming new hearts out of dead, dry bones. God creating new family out of one in which there was nothing but backbiting and bickering and hatred and deep enmity against one another, where this new family is arising and coming together not out of force, not out of fear, but out of love and embrace. Isn't that what you want to belong to? Isn't that really what we all want to belong to, where you come into a place and you are loved and accepted for who you are? But here's the beauty of the gospel is that being in that place, Jesus then begins to shape us into who he is and what he's like. So that we're not just simply trying to conform to a culture or principles, but out of love for a person, become like that person. That's what the gospel leads us to. And it's what Paul is saying is that these are the forces of new creation at work, forging, forming, recreating people to come together. Now, where in the world does spiritual warfare come in? So that was kind of my, my long introduction. Um, where does spiritual warfare come in? Here's where spiritual warfare comes in. Paul is basically saying it's in the context of God bringing new life out of the ground, if you would, that there are dark forces at work, forces of anti-creation, seeking to undermine and undo everything that God is wanting to do. Not just simply out there in another country or another culture, but sometimes, ironically, here in this building, in our hearts. And the way that they work is by way of influence. Influencing us to hold on to things that are totally unlike God. Hold on to longings and desires that are dark, that are evil, that are wicked. And the more that we nurture and cultivate those things, the more that we nurse those things, the more that those things begin to form like little wedges in our hearts and they bring divorce and division and brokenness and continue to perpetuate that brokenness in our lives. And what God seeks to do is to say, no, get rid of that bitterness that you have in your heart, that bitterness that's leading to bloodlust, that's constantly agonizing over wanting to see somebody suffer. That's got to die. If it doesn't die at some point, it will crush you. But the enemy whispers in our head, you deserve to have justice. They wronged you. You deserve to hate them. You deserve to shine anger upon them. You deserve every form of ill will that you feel towards them. You deserve it. All of which that just continues to perpetuate the undoing, the undermining of everything that God wants to do. These are what Paul would say are the forces of darkness at work. So I want to take a look at three things in the passage. We'll take a look at specifically now the remainder of our time, just looking at the passage, reading through it, and trying to understand what Paul is to say. We'll look at three things. One, we'll take a look at with regard to the subject of evil and spiritual warfare. One, the battle. Two, the enemy. And then three, the strength that we're offered. So first of all, let's take a look at the battle. Verse 12, so we'll kind of take the verses that we just read, verses 10 through 12, kind of in reverse order. We'll start with verse 12 and try to understand a little bit about the battle. Again, some of this is a little bit of review, but I'll go through it quickly nonetheless. Our battle, verse 12, he says this, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So first of all, by way of reiteration, our battle is not material or physical. Did you hear that? It's easy for us oftentimes to look at the problems in our life, the evil within our life, and think that the problem is the person that's sitting right next to us. The problem is our 
you know, the one that we're married to. The problem is our children. The problem is our parents. The problem is our boss. The problem is, and we go down the list, that's the problem. And what Paul is saying is, no, 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 actually, behind that is the real problem. There are evil influences, evil forces at work, not only maybe causing that person who is causing problems in your life to do things, to be influenced to do things that bring you shame and pain and hurt, but also influencing the way that you respond to them. You guys guys following this so far? You guys, this is making sense to you? So the point that Paul is making is that it's not not clearly material, that it's actually immaterial. It's non-physical. So the point that I would make is there is evil in this world, and that evil actually works in a lot of ways in cooperation with the physical, with sometimes even the psychological, with all of these things that sort of, so again, this is where I would say the Christian response to evil in this world is actually very nuanced, very complex in a lot of ways. So in other words, if you kind of take C.S. Lewis's approach that you have the magician and then you have the materialist, you realize that both the magician and the materialist, basically their main uh, way of handling the process of evil, the, the reality of evil, is by basically reducing it down to very simplistic terms. The materialist just simply says it's all material. The spiritualist, or the you know, uh, magician, the way he describes it, just basically says, no, every bit of evil in this world is just blamed upon the devil. The devil made me do it. Whereas the Christian, who understands what the scripture is saying, is what Paul is saying, is that actually it's very nuanced. It's not as simple. It's not as easy. We oftentimes like to try to reduce things down. That yes, there are spiritual dark forces at work behind what this physical world is, but it oftentimes works in concert or in cooperation with this physical world. Our emotions, our feelings, our chemistry. So it's not just simply enough to say, give a person a pill and somehow all the evil in their life will go away. It may help in some cases, but the reality is, is that it's not enough to just simply reduce it to simplistic terms. And what Paul is trying to do is help equip us that we, so that we can really truly deal and confront with the issue of evil. N.T. Wright, a, uh, a famous uh, New Testament scholar, basically said something to this effect in dealing with the issue of evil. He says, oftentimes, we ignore evil until it hits us in the face. Second thing, he says, these are three responses. One, first, we ignore evil until it hits us in the face. Secondly, we're surprised when evil, uh, we're surprised by evil when it then hits us in the face. And then thirdly, he says, we react in immature and dangerous ways after it hits us. So in other words, oftentimes the way that we as a culture deal with the subject of evil is we ignore it. By and large, we ignore it. We don't want to call it what it is. We don't want to identify it. Because at some point, we're very afraid of demonizing somebody or a group of people. You know, as Americans, we totally realize it's like completely not PC to in any ways demonize. And, you know, there's truth to that, of course. But the point of the matter is, is that there's a tendency to completely ignore it. So we as human beings, for the most part, when we're confronted with the issue of evil, we do everything we can to try to entertain ourselves away. To take our mind off of that situation and just simply take our mind someplace else. Even though our body physically is not able to be projected out of that area. So we use all sorts of entertainment to take our mind away from that. And really, that's simply a form of ignoring evil until evil hits us in the face. And it's kind of what happened in light of like 
That's no doubt what perhaps happens in all sorts of other areas within our culture where all of a sudden, I mean, we, tend to, we have the tendency to think that we are immune to anything really wicked or evil happening in this, in this culture. I mean, in some ways, we live in a bubble. I mean, San Luis is this amazing place, but in some ways, it's like this nice little safe zone bubble where we don't expect evil to happen here. We don't expect a Columbine to happen here, but it could. And when it does, and if it does, how do we respond to it? This is why he goes on to say that we're totally surprised. We're like, oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't know that was going to happen here. You realize that almost every circumstance that typically happens, I mean, you realize that even like in areas of Chicago, which is like the highest crime rate, there's sometimes, even sometimes we watch on the news, they're like, we're shocked that this happened here in our neighborhood. You're like, it's like two miles from the epicenter of the worst like crime area in the, in the, in the country. You guys are shocked by that? It's like, we are always shocked because we never tend to think that evil can get that close to us. But it leads to the third thing that N.T. Wright basically states is that until we are ready to grasp evil in a biblical perspective, that when evil happens, when it takes place, when it hits us in the face, when it confronts us, when it's no longer just through our computer screen or in another country or another culture, but when it's in our lives up close and we are... We are literally on the ground with it. Unless we have a paradigm by which to deal with it, then we will respond in immature ways. And typically what happens is that we will respond or retaliate to evil with more evil. And we never really do away with it. We actually become consumed by it. So at the end of the day, evil wins. And the gospel basically says no. You understand that? You understand that that's why the gospel is good news? Because God comes in and says, no, evil will not win. I will win. And I will win not by more evil, not by perpetuating more evil. And so we have to deal with the subject matter of evil and understand how to deal with it in a way that leads to life and not being consumed by the darkness. The second thing that we have to understand is that our battle is not only it's a battle, uh, our battle is not material. The second thing is our battle actually involves conflict with dark, intelligent methods. So this is actually in the very first portion of the passage where Paul basically says, we don't want to be ignorant of the schemes of the devil. Well, the word scheme that's actually used there in the Greek is methodia, the English word method from. It's the idea of planning, having a game plan, right? Actually mapping out like, you know, your next few steps. Um, it's the idea. It's like, you know, we have actual war strategists that are kind of trying to figure out how are we going to take out like a threat, say, for example, like ISIS, if they come into our homeland. How are we going to somehow have a strategy to deal with this type of stuff when it, if it happens in our homeland? But the point of the matter is, this is what Paul is saying, is that the devil actually has a strategy by which to take you out. Just chill on that for a second. Um, think of it this way. What Paul is saying and implying is that the devil is not just simply some, you know, dumb creature in a red suit that has a pitchfork. Um, That's like cartoon versions of the devil. It's 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 not real. But the point of the matter is what Paul is saying is that the devil actually has schemes, methods by which he is designed. In other words, you can think of it this way. Think of the devil like a sociologist. He has studied you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows what you struggle with. He knows the types of sins that not only you have committed, he knows the sins that have been committed against you. He knows those areas where you are weak and you may want 
and nurse vengeance upon somebody. He knows you, and he looks for ways. He studies you. Peter describes the devil like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The point of the matter is he's looking for opportunities by which to implement his method. And what Paul is saying here is that with regard to the battle, not only is it non-physical, but it's also formed kind of within this very intelligent, methodical type of strategy that the devil has against us. Second thing is that we need to know our enemy. I'll go through this very quickly. Paul simply describes him as the devil. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, the idea of devil or Satan um, oftentimes basically means uh, the adversary or an obstacle. Often, uh, is oftentimes even been translated as stumbling block. So if you think of uh, this uh, devil or the demon or Satan, however you want to describe it, as basically being an adversary set up, main purpose, main aim, main goal is to simply trip you and then to accuse you. So I want to finish with the third thing, which happens to be our strength. Where do we get strength? How do we progress? How do we move forward? And this is what Paul says as he urges in verse 10. Listen to what he says again. Chapter 6, verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then he gives another charge, which we'll actually get into more next week. He says, take on the whole armor of God. But I want to just finish with this first portion of verse 10, where he says, um, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. The word be strong basically means to have endurance, to develop endurance. You know that endurance basically comes through exercising, through working, through being stressed. I mean, do you realize that real endurance actually comes through stress? Like, there's no other way to actually build this thing that we call endurance without being stressed. Like, if you're going to build muscle, the only way to build muscle is actually by stressing that muscle to the point where it's taxed, it's stressed, and then it's able to rebuild itself. And then after it rebuilds itself, we would call that endurance. It's repairing, rebuilding itself, and it's stronger than it was before. You do that enough, and you get strong. You get really strong. You build up endurance. So the second thing that he says is be strong in the Lord. The word that he uses there, Lord, um, is actually the word, Greek word kurios. And basically throughout the New Testament, most of the time when that word kurios is actually used, it's in reference to Jesus. So what Paul is actually saying is be strong, let your strength, let your endurance be built up in Jesus, in the strength of his might. This is not your strength. This is not you going out and trying to tackle the devil. <laughs> You don't have strength and energy in your own to go tackle the forces of the enemy. You know why? Because the default nature of a heart is prone towards vindication, judgment, retribution, bitterness, anger. Do you realize that every single one of those things I just listed, all of those play right into the devil's schemes? What's the strength of the Lord? Another way to ask the question we know that Jesus is powerful, but how did Jesus use his strength, might, and power? The answer to that question is you got to look at the cross. The way he used his power, his might, his strength was to allow evil to do to him all that evil can do. But in the end, Jesus on the cross prays, God, forgive them. Once he rises again from the dead, because that's a glorious story, he comes back not to gather teams of people to go out and crush the Roman opposition or go out and crush the religious leadership that 
has sort of capitalized on the Temple Mount, but he goes out and says, let's go tell the whole world this good news, that life has overcome death, that light has overcome darkness, that good has overcome wickedness. In other words, how did Jesus overcome forces of evil? By more evil? No, by good, by forgiveness, by love. And when Paul says, be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might, this is a call to come to this God that forgives and washes us and cleanses us and then sends us out to go be part of that fresh purposes of renewal. But as you go out, you need to be aware that there are enemy enemies. There is an enemy at work trying to undermine and undo all the good things that God's doing in our lives by urging us, by tempting us, by influencing us to go back to those ways that breed death. So we end up playing right into the very evil. We overcome thinking we overcome evil with more evil. But in reality, all we're simply doing is propagating more evil rather than overcoming evil with good. And the gospel calls us to view our lives in a different way, first and foremost by seeing the fact that even though we were staunchly opposed to this great God, rather than God crushing us, God was crushed for us through his son Jesus because he loves us. So first of all, what you need to do as we finish is to see that what this looks like is you giving your heart, surrendering your ways, not just praying a prayer, not just asking Jesus into your heart, but seeing that Jesus actually has an agenda for your life and how you live, for your heart and how you feel, for your mind and how you think. And his agenda is one that leads to life, and freedom, and hope. To Turn to him. So we're going to respond by partaking of communion, by singing, by confessing sin. We'll have some people over off to the side. If you're here for whatever reasons that are going on in your life, you find yourself just overwhelmed and broken and hurt. Maybe you find yourself physically dealing with sickness and you need help. We're going to have some people off to the side that would like to pray for you. Why don't we all stand? We're going to finish. I'm going to pray. We'll sing, partake of communion, get prayer, and then we'll go into this world. We'll go out from this place, we'll scatter, and with God's grace, God's power, God's strength, the hope is, is that we would shine brightly God's goodness in this world, and we would overcome evil, not with more evil, but overcome evil with good, the good that God has shown to us. Let's pray. God, thank you. We want to respond right now by faith. Say thank you, God, that your aim for us, for this world, is not to crush it, but to give it new life. It's to save, it's to rescue, it's to deliver. Not to cast off, not to crush, not to ruin. So God, we want to submit our hearts, our lives to the very same purposes that you're up to. And God, that you would take our lives in some ways that may even be crushed and ruined and broken, oppressed, defiled, and bring wholeness for our brokenness, bring cleansing for our defilement, bring forgiveness for our offenses, bring love, God, where our hearts are crippled by cynicism and hatred and fear, bring love. 